All right, guys, Damon, you killed me with this, this move. It's like life goals made. I could, like this? Yeah, I, I pictured you right in Shark Tank chair. I was like, you know, I, I uh, made Barbara, it. Barbara, Barbara's so weird. Every time I do that, Barbara goes, ooh, you're I know, you did and a mid-combo, and I stuttered in my question because I was like, oh, my God, I just got the demon. Oh, I'm sorry. I love it. It was awesome. <laughs> the Rebel Leadership Podcast, a refreshing take on authentic leadership told through real stories. Let's smash the status quo and change how leaders lead once and for all. The power of influence and the impact it has on people is real. And when leaders work together to leverage their platforms and positions of influence, it can serve as an absolute force multiplier to truly change lives. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Damon John and Brian Lamb. Damon John is an entrepreneur in every sense of the word. He is a pioneer in the fashion industry, a shark on the five-time Emmy award-winning Shark Tank, a New York Times bestselling author, branding guru, and highly sought-after motivational speaker. Brian Lamb is a managing director and segment head for middle market banking and specialized industries, covering the Northeast for J.P. Morgan Chase Commercial Banking. Previously serving for two years as the firm's global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, he has been instrumental in propelling the firm's $30 billion commitment to racial equity. I am truly grateful to you both and all of the people who made today happen. Welcome to the Rebel Leadership Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, Allison. Yeah, thank you for having us. So people crave hearing someone else's story, someone who has done it before. They aspire to but they may not necessarily have the opportunities afforded to them. They may not have the tools. They may not have the belief or the clear path forward. So we're dying to hear how you did it. Damon, what was your first entrepreneurial memory? Selling pencils in schools. I think I was six years old, seven years old. I realized basically when the boys like the girls, the basic way that they uh, showed them that they liked them was try to hit them or knock their teeth out. And, um, and, and I realized that there was a better way to do that. So I'd find these pencils in school and I would scrape the paint off the pencils and paint the names of the girls on the pencils and say, the guys, you, know, you don't really want to hit her. You want to get to know her. So, you know, you give this pencil, to her, give me 25 cents and I give this pencil. And you can sit with her at lunch and then you can talk to them. And then the guys would uh, try to knock my teeth out. And um, <laughs> I, but then I realized something very important, that, that the girls would pay two times the amount of money for the same exact pencils. So I started selling pencils to the girls. And, um, you know, I was I was on the way to becoming a very successful entrepreneur at that time. And then my principal, who had absolutely no vision, um, made me stop selling the pencils because, you know, she found out that I was actually stealing the pencils from the boys that I hated in school. My, I mean, my cost of goods was zero. Exactly. You know, um, so... <laughs> That was as a, as, as a, as a and that's a true story. But then I would, I would, you know, when I was 10 or 12 or 14 or 15, I would, you know, like, like most kids and, you know, try to make some extra money. I would shovel snow in the winter, rake leaves. Um, but I also at that time realized that, and I don't understand, I don't know where it really came from. Now, when you look at it, 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 it you know, it, it's the real entrepreneurship, but when I would shovel snow, because I lived in, in in Queens, everybody worked in Manhattan. So I would basically know that the next time a snow came, that the people would not be home. They would be in Manhattan. And when they come home, if you know, if you live in New York or the Northeast, that snow is now 
it's a, it's a sheet of rock, you know, it's a sheet of ice. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is tell them that I would always be there to shovel their snow, even when they're away, if they have my $4 or $5. And then I would go and tell other kids that I would pay them $2. And then I have 30 or 40 houses and I had a customer that they couldn't poach and I would make money that way. So anyway, those are my little uh, versions of my first entrepreneurial journeys. Was that just intuitive to you? the concept of, of business and entrepreneurialism, or were you observing someone around you or people around you as influencers that helped guide those actions? Well, we're always influenced by the people around us. And I was influenced by uh, my mother and my dad and a lot of people that always said, even if it's your day job, your day job will never make you rich. It will be the things you do after you're paid what you're supposed to do. So whether you are in a large corporation or whether you are an entrepreneur, over-providing for your customer and putting in the extra time and effort and thinking about ways you can make yourself unique would be always the ways that I would benefit. Um, and, and that's what I was basically doing. You could be an entrepreneur, absolutely entrepreneurial thinking, whether you're in a large corporation or a single mom and pop operation, it's just a form of thinking. And, and that's what I was raised with, that form of thinking. Describe what that form of thinking entails. You don't need money to make money. And every time you see something, somebody did it. Somebody started it. It started all with somebody who had one one idea um, that took one step forward, whether it is the biggest buildings in the world or the smallest thing. It also means that you should step to something and come to something as a solution-based person. And always be absolutely obsessed with your customer. And your customer, a lot of people think very literally your customer is a person you're having a transaction with that you may or may not know. Your customer, my staff is my customer. My wife is my customer. My customer is my customer. And when you think of coming to things as a as a way of service, my friends are my customer, then what happens is when you think of it like that and you keep giving and giving and giving and trying to solve problems, people want to also solve problems with you, be, you know, be part of what you're thinking or, or, or help you solve other people's problems. And I think that's entrepreneurial thinking, problem solving, not starting too big, not trying to build Rome step-by-step step, learning after you take an action and then repeating it, trying a million times and being very, very obsessed with the end goal of over-providing for your customer. When you were referring back to your different types of customers and you mentioned your employees, I've never thought of it that way before, but how would you describe your now the mature, experienced, highly credentialed entrepreneur that is you and your brand? Who are you? How do you show up every day for them? What does it look like? Well, I try to show up by example. I try to show up by I'm willing to do every single thing that I've asked somebody else to do. Um, I try to show up to say that, you know, if there's a problem, we have an open door. I may not agree with you, um, but we collectively need to learn how to fix this this problem and both benefit from it. Um, I, I like to have a lot of transparency. I don't like to lead with this hammer, but I, I do like to say that, you know, we are accountable for our actions. And uh, if this doesn't happen, well, these are the, the results that we may or may not get. And what are we going to do after that? And I like to also listen to them. My, you know, my, my concept of an employee is somebody who's smarter than me in any area. Uh, if I'm hiring you or working with you, then um, I expect you to be smarter than me. If you're only going to do everything that I say, well, then we're never going to grow. Um, so I'm, I'm supposed to work for you just as much as you're supposed to work for me. 
was your lowest point in your journey? As the journey as an entrepreneur, my lowest point, I think, was when, and everybody leaves different, um, when I had a massive amount of people in my company, which is not massive when you comparison to you know, the people, you know, like Brian, how many people worked underneath him. But I, I had about 350 internally and 2000 externally that worked for me. Um, and I started to hear that people were being whether held back or uh, discriminated against or not getting the credit they deserve by maybe some people that could have been poor leaders. And I had opened and I, and I wanted to empower people with my company because I never wanted them to be held back by any kind of glass ceiling due to their race, gender, color, creed, or anything else like that. And I felt like I didn't get to know people at that point when it was 350 people. So I wanted to try to find a way to, uh, do what I do best, but have a small group of people that I could hear what is challenging them or more importantly, what, you know, what they want to do in life. And I think that that was the the lowest point when I started to hear that people were being let go or felt discriminated against due to whatever it is. I take my hat off to people that can move 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people in unison. And that is very connected to the reason why Brian Lamb, you are here is that you're coming at this from a corporate leadership perspective and and JP Morgan Chase is doing some pretty powerful work in the space when it comes to racial inequality specifically the 30 billion dollar commitment by the end of 2025 to advance that economic growth for black hispanic and latino communities but you especially are a pioneer you specifically were the first ever head of diversity and inclusion at this massive organization how did that whole thing come to be and what was your journey as a piece of that? Yeah, so Allison, great. First of all, good to, good to be here and really exciting to hear Damon's story. He's an inspiration to all of us. And so I'm glad we're able to talk a little bit together. When you think about, you know, that time in 2020 when we were all dealing with in our own way, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our businesses, in our families, a very difficult time, you know, in terms of the social and racial awakening that was happening and our own reaction to that was tough. And so I had a chance to come into the global diversity, equity, and inclusion role. And I would say like most entrepreneurs kind of be a part of the change, but like a great entrepreneur, like Damon, when you see an opportunity, not everyone really is willing to have the courage to kind of step out when it isn't ultra clear, right? When the path is less traveled, you know, when there's not this big safety net there and kind of go out and maybe say and do some things that you principally know could have a generational impact that you, you generally know are the right things to do and that you could be a person to help do it. I was really fortunate to be able to move into a role to, to come up with with my colleagues here at J.P. Morgan Chase, a strategy that is, I think, building upon some of the work that J.P. Morgan Chase had done for years to try to create equitable opportunities and a more inclusive culture for our employees. The fact of the matter is, Allison, like like any great entrepreneur, the work's never done. And so the $30 billion racial equity commitment was yet another significant step forward for us to challenge ourselves. Frankly, like to Damon's point, listen to our customers who had given us feedback that we could do better. Our employees said we could do better. Homeowners said we could do better. Small businesses said we could do better. So like, when you listen to those stakeholders, right, 
and you want to ultimately be the best version of yourself as an entrepreneur, as a leader, right? As a public servant, as a corporate citizen, like if you kind of whatever lens you look through, if you principally have the idea of being the best version of yourself, then you're going to take bold, courageous steps like any great entrepreneur. And I think I was just fortunate enough to play that role for JP Morgan. And I hope that we have been able to create pathways for entrepreneurs, frankly, like yourself, that are doing amazing things in the marketplace, in diverse communities, folks that historically have not had the same opportunity. You know, I think Rebel's paving a way. I think what Damon's done is a perfect example of it. And frankly, um, I'm going to be pretty restless at J.P. Morgan Chase to make sure we keep doing our part. Why do you think this topic is so important right now from either of your perspectives? We come from a world where a lot of people think that, you know, people are ingenuine. So I was working with J.P. Morgan and Chase prior to Brian coming aboard. So to and this was I've been working with them, I think, since 2017. And they've always been committed to this space. And then Brian comes aboard. And by the way, Brian came aboard prior to George Floyd. And he came aboard as uh, somebody they knew that was of value, who they didn't necessarily care about the color of his skin, but about the quality of who the person is and was. And they happened, you know, the world happened to melt, uh, I think, about six months after he came aboard. And they said, Brian, this this is your thing. You already were talking this to even do what we were doing just in a bigger way. So I want to make sure that people understand this was not because I after after George Floyd, I have I got called by 15 people to be on boards that never cared about a person of color to be on boards prior to that. And then last year, uh, as we had done many things, I've noticed that literally about 70 percent of the organizations that it said they committed to certain areas have all of a sudden have selective amnesia now and and that doesn't necessarily mean that they wanted to have selective amnesia but as they felt they may have been heading into a recession and various other things they're cutting and slashing and burning in so many other different areas where where uh jp morning chase kind of almost doubled down so um so that 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 is that is that is the the groundwork for making sure we understand this is not just a PR thing that they're doing. Because uh, I would not get on here if I thought, thought that was the case. The reason I think this work is important to your point is if you, you've kind of got to look back to understand like why this work is so important for the future. You know, it was 60, 70 years ago before we saw this type of visibility and tenacity around trying to create equitable opportunities for entrepreneurs, for communities, corporations making commitments, influencers leaning in around trying to drive change. It's been a really long time since you've seen this type of galvanization around a particular cause. The reason it's so important for us to lean in now, sustainability. It should not take for someone to die. Absolutely. For all of us. Mm-hmm. To realize how important it is to give each other an opportunity to be successful, to have equitable opportunities. It should not take for someone to die, for corporations or influencers, for entrepreneurs to feel like they've got a chance to go be their very best. And it sure shouldn't take for someone to die, for us to have a level of respect for each other and willingness to listen to opposing views. Right. And the conversation is there. The conversation is happening much more 
than it ever was, or at least it feels like it's top of mind more than it's ever been discussed. And yet still people in a position of leadership don't necessarily always have the courage to say, where do I begin? I, I genuinely want to change and be a part of the positive influence and part of the change. But as a white 36 year old female in leadership, how do I do it? What do I need to do better to be better? You know, if half of the team or a quarter of the team, or you know, has to, or they're, they're forced to sit on the bench and they can't play, then it's going to be harder to win the game. But in the reality is, you know, infrastructure is not, you know, where it should be in many of the communities out there, and nobody's doing that, and nobody's educating and giving people the fair shot. We're going to pay for it one way or another. So we are either going to create a, a society where it's cribs to corrections or cribs to colleges. And the young men and women of the world who do not necessarily see a Brian or a Damon every day will have nobody to really look up to to want to emulate. You become what you look at and what you think about the most. And unfortunately, if we aren't out there giving them the, this education, then they're going to get go out there and we're going to be paying for it one way or another. So whether we as a taxpayer is going to pay $80,000 per cell, per jail cell, every year for an individual, or we are going to pay for people who are going to now help become instead of liabilities in our communities, they're going to be mentors in our communities, instead of, uh, you know, people in jail, they're going to be taxpayers, and they're going to be other things, and it's going to lift us all up. And where does a person like you start or anybody start? This is a big world. And I don't want to say that one, you know, it's only going to be about African Americans, you know, it's also about veterans, it's about LGBTQ, it's about being a great global citizen. And at the end of the day, you still have to run rebel leadership, right? So how much time can you spend on all these things? But as a true entrepreneur, you, you start to find, and, and the way to start is to have a conversation like we're having today and educate you a little you, yourself a little bit more on why the problems exist. And once you do that, you can take small steps forward and but have more conversations. You know, I was going to post something where there was this room where this African-American woman was at a room with a bunch of uh, uh, Caucasian women at a table. And she said, raise your hand if you would uh, have a child with a, a person of color, knowing what that person of color would face, your child would face growing, growing up. And many of those women would not raise their hand. And a lot of people responded, oh, these are Karens or everything else like that. And I responded as... We can't help how we were, how we were born or what class we were born or whatever the case is, but we can help what tables we're willing to sit at. These women were willing enough to sit at this table to have the conversation. Brian, what's your perspective on what leaders are doing wrong? There's a level of just cultural competence that's needed to to somehow to to really play a meaningful role in advancing, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That takes a willingness to listen and learn. And I think that's what Damon just touched on, right? And that vulnerability, right? That kind of, that vulnerability that Brian must have or other leaders must have is is pretty important, right? To, to be able to admit that you might not understand 
or that you need more insight or data to get a good appreciation for what might be getting in the way of an inclusive experience for your employees, for your colleagues, for your business and your clients. The other things leaders I just kind of encourage is this idea of you also can help create an environment where those around you feel like they can be their authentic selves, their real selves. That having civil discourse and debate, open discussions, willing to talk about topics that sometimes might be a bit uncomfortable, right? Like that's the space that you got to be willing to enter. And if you need help, be willing to ask for help because there's those that can maybe help you have those conversations in a productive way. But I have just found that real talk really starts to kind of tear away at the myths and legends and misunderstandings and gives chance of folks to, to really kind of be themselves. And there's just a clear path forward when you can do that. And then the last thing I say for leaders is like any great entrepreneur, where you can get information, facts that help you make informed decisions, draw informed include, you know, conclusions, provide guidance, like try to try to use data and not always rely on just your opinion or what you heard 20 years ago, uh, or maybe even how you were just what you saw when you were growing up. Be willing to look at new information and new data that might inform how you will make decisions or lead or make investments. There's nothing like just having the facts sometimes that can make you a better leader. Yeah. And I mean, that authentic space that you're creating is the safe space to invite facts in and talk about them and what they mean and how they influence. I've personally seen that through the work of my podcast, just having the ability and the platform to lean into real, real shit, right? It's about, it's hard to lead. It's complicated. It's emotional. There's a roller coaster, but it has changed our business being able to, to be honest with one another, well, it's going to take leadership, Allison, to get to that sustainability I talked about, right? Like the moments now, but we all get busy and things happen around the world and people have short memories from time to time. And so if we don't have great leadership in this space, I don't know how you get the sustainability around creating opportunities for great entrepreneurs all over the world. Right. And to Damon, to that, to your point, that selective remembering It's like, if we don't lead through this constantly, when an event isn't happening, then it will never change. I have about 20 interns every, every semester that, you know, work, work for us. And uh, at that time I I was at a physical location. We sourced from the best schools in New York city, right? NYU, Columbia, and uh, we wanted the best talent. But if you really think about it, how many are going to be minorities out of those schools, right? Um, so I turned around and looked at out of the 20 interns I had, two of them were people that looked like me. I had to do a better job of mm. giving people that look like me a better chance. I, and you know, obviously, I don't have an issue or any kind. I want to do more. So it's fine. I had to correct that. Uh, but if that was somebody with another, you know, from another culture or color of skin, they may have felt and somebody else would have said to them, well, you don't want to do that. No, I just didn't think about it at the moment. Thank you for bringing it to my attention as data. Let's yep. go forward. Speaking yep. of education, higher education is a space we play in significantly. It's one of our core practice areas from a digital marketing perspective, and it's undergoing massive, massive change that could have a huge potential to impact diversity and inclusion efforts, things like 
stackable skills, the accessible online content taught by the big players, really affordable, great courses available on your Courseras and all of the online communities. How do you both see this change in education and specifically higher education and its potential to impact this topic? Higher education, at least from my perspective, probably been one of the most important currencies in America. It's not the only currency. Many of our great entrepreneurs did not need to, and many of our leaders did not need to take on the path of higher education. But in many ways, it's a very powerful currency. And so I'm not surprised that we're starting to see higher education play a role in helping to advance opportunities for those that may have been left behind in the past, from upskilling and creating jobs and opportunities to helping those think about entrepreneurship. There are tons of universities around the country now that have literally stood up colleges or schools of entrepreneurship, which are centered principally on some of the things that Damon talked about around that curiosity and that innovation and that courage and that creative thinking to go out and solve a problem. And so higher education, I think, is a great opportunity for us to lean in, create lots of entrepreneurs into the future and give opportunities to those that historically may have not had a chance, been left behind, there's a role for higher ed. It's not the only place. And there's things that you want to be smart and thoughtful about how you do it. But I do think it's a great currency for our entrepreneurs and for business leaders to learn about how they can lean in in the future. Little Damon Learns to Earn is coming out in March. Damon, your new children's book, introducing kids to basic ideas about money and starting a business and all the foundationals yep. you talked about in the beginning. How might this have helped you as a kid? In, in, in immense ways, because, you know, like, so I have an average of a thousand teachers, but I, I drill down to 20 that I speak to often as I create this. This And so the book is not necessarily only for children, it's for family members with children to go through this process. As I talked to a lot of my teachers who teach fifth to 10th grade, they said they themselves do not have financial intelligence because they, they may have been great from reading math, all those other things. So how can our educators teach our children if they don't have it themselves? Um, but, you know, um, where it taught me is uh, it really is an example of what I did as a child, right? When I talked about shelling the snow and getting people on board, but this more is about working in a collective group, using the skills and the, the things that another child may have. So if you can dance and I can sing, we're going to do this together and how both can benefit off of this. And then how do they create a business? Because what has happened today is, you know, we no longer have the leaders that we had or the heroes. Our children don't want, no longer have the heroes that they had in the past. You know, after five or six years old, they they kind of have this vague area of, of where they're going to go. So prior to that, you have Peppa Pig, Daniel Tiger, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. But we all grew up on, you know, Mr. Rogers and Steve from Blue's Clues and Mr. Ross, who used to paint and electric company. So something I'm extremely passionate about. And I want our children to have heroes. And because 
Honestly, I've been I've been one of the only African-American men in kids living rooms for the last 14 years that have nothing to do with music, sports or politics. I'm the one to talk to these young men and women and show them that if I can make it, oh, you can make it. Can you both think of an example in your career where you gave someone an opportunity to succeed when others doubted them and they proved everybody wrong? Whether it's inside the company where I believed in talent that probably didn't get a fair fair shake in the past or might not have had the right leadership and coaching. And so they just, they were being underdeveloped. And if they would have stayed the course there, they would have continued to underperform. And so I can, I think about when someone doesn't have a great leader or a great manager, uh, what it does to really get in the way of their own personal and professional development. I've seen that before. And as often as any of us can is try to root that out so that folks can realize their full potential. So I've seen that work really well. On the entrepreneurship side, I can tell you lots of companies, entrepreneurs that I've worked with that just needed a little help with their strategy. Then maybe the way they were presenting it wasn't fully developed or they hadn't thought about, to Damon's point, maybe the financial elements, the competitive landscape. They hadn't thought about how they were going to get the product from point A to point B and what that might cost or what the options are. From time to time, I've just worked with entrepreneurs that just needed a little fine tuning on their strategy. And it was able to go from a good idea to to an exceptional and wildly successful opportunity. I'm going to tell a quick story of, you know, when I first started to make it, you know, basically what happens in our industry is Monday morning, nine o'clock, the phone rings. That's when you get your report card. Friday, everybody who has sold through your goods are going to call Monday or anybody's goods and say, I need more goods. The weekend is over, right? Well, if you don't answer that phone at 9 a.m., well, they're not going to fill it. They can't get more food in. They're calling Nike. They're calling Tommy. They're calling everybody else. And at, and at 11 o'clock, you aren't having any sales. I hired this one young lady. She kept coming in at 11 or 12 o'clock. She wasn't coming into that. And I immediately wanted to fire her. My partners who were a little more advanced in business had said to me, do you ever ask her why she's coming in? I took it as an insult. She's stealing from me. She hates me. She's lazy. And they said, did you ever find? And I I had a conversation with her and I found out that she had an issue at home that um, somebody was very sick in her family. And she just thought she was on borrowed time. There was nothing else she can do, but she needed to be there at that time to get medicine, whatever the case is. I asked her, how can I help? And she said, listen, I'll just stay later on at night if so forth can replace me at this moment just for three months. She became one of my best and most productive employees for the last for 20 years and then went off to open up her own business. And it was just because of that conversation to understand there's always a person behind the number. When... We are taught as entrepreneurs, don't listen to the naysayers, power through it, believe in yourself. They're constantly telling you, that's a bad idea, don't take the risk, if you think about this, that's not realistic. And we're told, you must hustle. And we've felt that, we've all felt that personally in different ways, obviously yours is on a much bigger scale. But then there's also a point with which there's a breaking point where it is a bad decision and you need to cut your losses. And Damon, you notoriously 
are many times this person on Shark Tank where they need to hear the hard truth. And you're only receiving small amounts of information in order to decide that. What is that determining factor? You know, I always ask myself when I open a new business it is, why is this needed? Why now and why me? Um, and if I can't answer those, then I have a bigger problem. But the, the, the deciding factor of cutting losses in a business is a very, very personal one. It's your inventory. You know, if I decide to, uh, you know, close down a, a, a no-kill shelter after 10 years, um, well, maybe I'm in, maybe the money I'm in debt, but it's not a bad decision of what I was doing. I was saving animals' lives. So the reward doesn't have to be a monetary reward. If the business you're in, you take in, you know, a couple of million dollars and you're doing two million this year and, you know, you, that couple of million dollars takes you up to four million, but you're still netting the same thing. But now you have to report to other people and you don't have the, the ability to take vacations with your family. Well, then what did you do it for? You have to take inventory on what exactly you're doing it for, because you're the only one who knows exactly what you want to get out of it. Um, but if you are like, like Brian saying, you got to go for facts. We have, you know, you can make up your own opinion, but you cannot make up your own facts. And you have to take inventory of these things and see what is, what is really important to you. When it comes to trends, you've also been ahead of the curve multiple times since the start of your career, clothing lines, hip hop movement, but trends now are evolving just so much faster. The pressure is so intense. Think Metaverse, AI, robotics, even cultural trends like the women's movement, influencers, the tech bubble, that your window as an entrepreneur seems drastically shorter. It feels much more pressure and an even greater risk when there's competitors everywhere you look. It's harder to take that leap. So how do you both advise entrepreneurs to decide what to jump on? And is there a point with which you can help understand or help evaluate the risk that it is before you take it. A serial entrepreneur is never rest, right? The mind's always spinning. There's a constant influx of ideas and jobs to be done or problems to solve. What my general advice would be is always hold on to that natural energy and motor that gets you going. That's a beautiful thing and it will serve you well. I also suggest that you find what I call that intersection of where you've got a superpower, meaning what you do exceptionally well, what you perform at an elite level, and lay that next to what you're passionate about. Find that intersection because quite frankly, there might be things that you do exceptionally well that don't get your motor running. You aren't as excited about it. You aren't up at 6 a.m. and going home at 10 o'clock at night. Like You've got to be able to find that intersection, and it will help you start to parse down the vast array of ideas and things that are floating around in your mind or suggestions that are coming in the door. So first, find that intersection. And the second thing is, and this is hard for entrepreneurs, and Damon will tell you this, is it's a very lonely place to be an entrepreneur in most cases. It's just hard to be a great leader great entrepreneur, it can be a very lonely place. If you can and when you can, I have a philosophy just around finding like that personal board of directors. And I use that corporate speak to illustrate a point. It's a group of individuals. It could be family members. It could be ex-colleagues. It could be community leaders. There, there isn't a title that 
it lines up to that personal board, but the role of the board is important. They are vested in your success. They are your accountability partners, and they are willing to tell you the truth, even when it hurts. You can bounce off ideas. You can be vulnerable. You can celebrate together, and you can cry together. Like, find that very small group of individuals that can be that personal board for you, as hard as it may seem to do, because they also may help you filter through that vast array of, you know, opportunities that just principally might not make good sense or might not be a good path for you, knowing that they genuinely want the very best for you. That's incredible advice. Damon, what about you? The more successful you know, I find that people become, the more no's uh, we have to, we say no more than anything else because we have, we can drown an opportunity and there's a lot of things that can lead you astray from it. So uh, it really is do not chase trends. Anything and everything that exists still is powerful. If you feel that only the billboards are dead because now I have to go only go social media, well, you can't swipe a billboard when you when you're sitting on the Long Island Expressway for two hours, right? That might be more powerful. If you think the retail is dead, that that's fine. But if you have a great product that is really hands-on, well, if you happen to open retail in in airports, well, you have a captivated audience that can't get Amazon. They they have a they're not hitchhikers or taking a train, so they have somewhat of a disposable income. It's usually about twenty percent more in, in the airport, and you have a, a fewer competition. So there is no trend. There is what you feel works best for you, and you should go slow and steady with that. Dig in and lean in. You're you're talking my language about the art and science of digital marketing. It's like we've yeah. swung way too far in one direction. It's about finding the sweet spot in the middle that makes people really Absolutely. successful. When it comes to leadership, in your experience, having been exposed to good ones and likely horrifying ones, what makes a great one? Uh, everybody has different forms of leadership, but I, I believe the the true leaders are the ones that First of all, understand the core of what's driving their team and driving each individual. They are vulnerable too. You know, they are not weak. They are showing where they may not know as much, may need your help. You know, people love to know that somebody else depends on you for your help or or values your service. Mm-hmm. True leaders do not take credit for anything except for the bigger problems. You know, at the end of the day. Um, you know, when when we are succeed, everybody succeeded. At the end of the day, when there's a big problem that couldn't be solved, somehow I failed somebody. Um, and I just believe that that is a form of leadership. What I typically see for entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, even community leaders, is they're very purpose-driven. So you're not confused when you're around those great leaders on what they stand for and what they believe and why they are trying to, to do what it is that they're doing. And that clarity, whether you agree with it or not, really helps people have followership. The other thing about leadership that's interesting, we think about it at J.P. Morgan Chase a lot as well, is a great leader wants to create an environment where others can thrive. And they are surrounding themselves with outstanding talent, diverse talent, diverse thinking, diverse backgrounds that principally lift the entire organization or the lift the strategy or lift the startup company. And so great leaders just aren't afraid to be surrounded by incredibly bright people. There's nothing more powerful than having the courage to be wrong. 
There's just something to be said about being wrong because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And your willingness as a leader to accept it and create an environment where people can take chances, they can take appropriate risk. And if they're wrong, we learn, we all get better and we all move forward. That kind of innovative environment just tends to attract and inspire people. Uh, In closing, what's the most important thing you hope to be remembered for? You know, I want my I want my little girls to be able to say that my daddy did accomplish this um, where I gave I pay, I paid it. You know, I stand on the shoulder of the giants and I and I'm, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to hopefully pay it forward to others. I want them to be proud. I want my them and my grand. You know, I'm, I'm not going to leave them anything, by the way. So it ain't going to be the money. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, you know, you know what they say, right? First generation makes it, second enjoys it, third destroys it. So uh, that's right. You give them every, you give them everything, you make them the poorest people in the world. And by the way, they don't want anything. My, well, my six year old still does, but my twenty nine and twenty four year old have moved on to be really amazing people, and nobody kind of knows who they are. But that's what I want to be. I just want them to say that you know, um, for the blessings that I've received, I've been able to pay it forward, and 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 hopefully, uh, create bigger and better Damon Johns of the world. My dad used to always say, you want to have a good name. When it's all said and done, you're done working, you're done serving, you're done spending and buying and investing and all the things that happen in your life, you want to have a good name. And so I think what I want to be remembered for is hopefully my reputation is tied to me helping others, being a public servant, you know, doing the things that at least make this place just a little bit better. And that my kids one day say the same thing I'm going to say about my parents, which is if I'm half the man of my as my dad, if I'm half the man of him, then I've been pretty successful. Well, I think you've both accomplished exactly what you set out to do. I am extremely grateful for your time, both personally and for our audience on this podcast, just to learn directly from two of the greats. Thank you so much for your time. The world needs more rebellious leaders like the two of you. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for what you're doing. Absolutely.